I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know how it feels now. She's trying to replace me. What do I do? You stole my things. I was just trying to be perfect like you. Perfect. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to the podcast at the intersection of faith and fear where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the Fear of God podcast. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here a minute ago, but he was heading confidently and Frenchly out the door to a rehearsal. Um, But before he left, he said if he was only casting the white swan, that it would be mine. So I can't wait for that cast list to go up. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you back to our year-long umbrella series, that of 2020-2020, where we examine 20 films of the last 20 years in the year 2020, a year that feels like 20 in itself. To know more about the intention behind the series, go check out our precap episode from the end of January. Today, we are looking at the year 2000. And 10. Last week, we discussed Drag Me to Hell, aka America in 2020. Just kidding. That was 2009. This week, covering 2010, is the Darren Aronofsky film Black Swan. But I'm getting ahead of myself because here at The Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain, except for right now, when I explain that you can listen to The Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform. You can watch The Fear of God on YouTube. And you can browse The Fear of God on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com, where you'll find episode archives and merch, including cell phone cases, t-shirts, campaign buttons, face masks. You better wear them. They're meant for others, not for you, okay? Magnets, pillows, Reed! Hey, buddy! Reed, um... Hey, Reed. Okay, you are sleeping. That is unexpected. Hi! Hey. I'm sorry. Uh yeah, your your performance there just uh 
it lulled me into a sweet sense of oh. restfulness and uh, and so well, yeah so okay well i don't know how to receive that but but if i can ask reed did um Am I your snow queen? Well, I'll tell you, Nathan. You are, but you do have an alternate. What? Yeah. An an alternate? What? But who? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Let's see, business section. Ooh la la, what do we got here? <laughs> <laughs> see, how, see how long I can hold that. What I like. Oh, I can handle that guy as an alternate. It's all good. I mean, let him have the stage. I mean, sure. I've got some energy, but he's got more than I do. Nice. Sure. That's right. It is time for the fear of God call to action. Segment. Yes, it is. Um, once more, uh, and for the foreseeable future, we want your email so that you can get a fear of God sticker designed mm-hmm. by Jacob Hunt, mailed directly to your post office box as long as we hopefully still have a post office hey keep the post office wow funded um but is is everything dire these days (laughs) uh, a little bit yeah actually um so go to the website where it says subscribe put your email in there and hit enter we'll be checking that uh once you're in we're going to send you a request for your mailing address at which time you will then be sent a sticker. We've already sent out a good crop of them. Um, once you have your sticker, you can put it on your, your water bottle. You can put it on your computer. You can put it wherever you want, take a picture of it, post it to social media. And what happens if they post it, Reed? So if you post it to social media and if you tag us and it, it doesn't just have to be the sticker. I mean, anything that you post relative to the show, you can share the show itself. You can share your favorite episode. You can share a review. You can just comment about the show if you want to or share that newly acquired sticker that you receive. But if you share that to social media and you tag us in it, you are automatically going to be entered for the chance to win an autographed copy of Lovecraft Country, autographed by the author Matt Ruff. Because that's exciting. Next week we are going to be starting our book club. Book club. So uh, next week we have a conversation with author Matt Ruff, and so that means you only have two weeks uh, this week and next week to share something to social media, tag the show. You will automatically be entered uh, for a chance to win an autographed copy of Lovecraft Country. Uh, that's very exciting. I'm very very excited about that. That is very exciting. And so, the yeah. other call to action, read that have been coming in already, but we want some more, you know, um, is the I audience. Want it all. <laughs> you want it when? Now. <laughs> That'd be nice. Now. Yes. Um, we, we, wow. I'm glad, I'm glad to see you, buddy. <laughs> um, we want you guys, we want you guys. To record, as a la read just then, um, record your own version. It can be a rock opera version, you know, big hair version. That's I would all good. love to hear a big That'd hair rock opera version. Um, oh my record gosh, your yes. variation of the what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're listening to uh, theme song. And we're going to be using these. We've already begun using yes. these. We're going to continue using these. We want to create a database of listeners' renditions of what you're watching, reading, listening to, and mm-hmm. play it on the show when we watch, read, and listen to things. Um, it doesn't have to be you. It can be you. It can be your family. It can be your kids, your coworkers on your next Zoom meeting. What? Whoever. Yeah. Use your voice memo recorder or something equally easy and email it to 
fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We'll use it on the show and we will credit you. Reed, do you have any other calls to action you would like to issue forth to the listeners? Uh, I think I'm good. If they will do those three things, they will make my heart very happy and I would appreciate it very much. So yes, that. Well, in the spirit of that, I'm going to send my alternate away. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. It's showtime. Nicely done. Lackey. Lackey the Listicle. <laughs> Speaking of characters, welcome back, Lackey the Listicle. <laughs> it's so good to have you. He I miss Lackey the Listicle. And I'm in I'm in a, a, a new location. I'm in a you different are in a new location. I'm, I'm in a different I'm in a different space. So I don't know if listeners could tell, but uh well listeners can't tell. Viewers nope. on YouTube. Viewers might be able tell. to. Yeah, yeah viewers well, might be able, able to. to. <laughs> that uh, that I am actually I'm I'm in a, a special place. I am in the home of my beloved wife. In the small world. Oh. Yes, I'm in the home of my beloved wife's beloved parents, and uh, there's very, a lot of very, belovedness there. There is, there is. I it's like it's it. true. Um, so we had the opportunity, uh, much needed and and uh, well, yeah, desperately needed and uh, much adored uh, opportunity to spend some time with them. We had done our necessary quarantine restrictions and regulations, and been spending some time with them. And it's uh, yeah, it's been really, it's been really nice. It's been really refreshing. And they have a room completely dedicated. To Disneyland, so um, so yeah, Lackey the Listicle. It is, it is. So Lackey the Listicle is uh, out. Lackey the Listicle is in a new location, and uh, so now, as we have been doing uh, all this year, we are tagging in on your favorite horror films from 2000 all the way up through 2020. It is 2020. 2020. So we are right now (laughs) going to you. You are such a good co-host. You went ahead and. And notated the, I the fog cannon. Yeah, I I'm did. So, yeah. uh, do you want to take odds or evens on this? What do you I'm going to take odds. You're going to take odds. Okay. So yeah. that means I'm going to dive in with number 10. And so this is uh, a film that was a shortlist contender. We never actually covered it, but it is a really strong film. It was a shortlist contender for our series called Speaking in Tongues, uh, where we covered a bunch of foreign language horror films. We will probably, if we revive that series again at some time in the future, uh, maybe we will get across to this one. It is directed by Andre Ovredal. It is Troll Hunter. Have you ever seen this? I have not. It's, I just wanted to hear you take a crack at the name. Oh, okay. That's why I yeah. gave you that. I don't know that I got it right. But, I know. But I gave it I a good shot. You did. You gave it the old college try. I did. I gave it a grad student try. I don't know about that. <laughs> don't get ahead of yourself. Um, yeah, this, yeah, is yeah. A, this is a really fun film. Uh, just basically the premise, it's, it's kind of a faux documentary style where they're hunting trolls and monsters. And for what I presume is a rather limited budget have some really impressive effects like when they are driving or when they confront the actual monstrous trolls it looks it looks pretty great um now is it like earnest level trolls no 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 no. it's like some you could look up the poster and you you'll see it's like don't diss the earnest trolls no i'm not dissing the earnest trolls i'm just saying like the earnest trolls are proximate height to a average human being these trolls are gigantic. I mean, oh. they are huge. And so they're, they're more like colossus, you know, and so they are, uh, just incredible. Like they're Interesting. The, the poster art. If you just pull up troll hunter, the poster art will show you like there's a car and in the distance you can see like the legs, like the troll, you know, extends out of frame. Like the, it only goes up to about waist high for them. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's a really interesting and fun. And the flip. second one was like the world tour. 
That was the Troll Hunter up. Troll Hunter World Tour. That is it. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Okay. I, I haven't seen that one yet either. Yeah, exactly. So um and this is the musical. Hey, Reed, version you know, I was just looking show. at I haven't had a haircut in like four months. It is just it's wild. Why do you think I thought proactively and always have my hat on? Well, I can't wear hats. My head's too big. Your head. Forty years of that. No, really. <laughs> You're like, no, no, it's no, a no. thing. No, no, I'm not just like pandering for a gag here. No, it's <laughs> okay. a thing. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Regardless, so uh, moving right along. Yeah, moving right uh, along. Number nine is uh, directed by Gareth Edwards. The film Monsters. I love this movie. It's a great this film. Is yeah, it's a fantastic. really fantastic. I would love to cover this again. Yeah, if only to be able to see it again. Yes. No. It's it's a really really great film. Uh, very subversive kind of uh not in an antagonistic way just in a in a thought-provoking and and unique way uh kind of idea of 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 not only monsters and their uh, sort of the alien invasion but also some hints of like a you know a, a pandemic sort of uh like viral spread sort of thing it's been years since i've seen it but i remember really really liking it quite a bit so yeah we should we should uh Put this on the old radar to get some get some coverage. I would love we to watch it again. That. So, um, speaking of coverage, the next one is one we have covered. This uh, number eight, directed by Matt Reeves. Speaking of Batman, yes, exactly. Um, Fear of God episode twenty two. It was the Dracula companion, the companion to the Universal Monsters film Dracula. It is Let Me In, the remake, the American remake of uh, the Swedish film, Let the Right One In, uh, which I infamously cite that I enjoy Let Me In more than the Swedish original, though I do respect greatly and greatly enjoy the Swedish original. But you can listen to all of our thoughts on that one. That is still an episode. I don't know if you know this, but that is still an episode that I... um, in my mind go back to from time to time i really am proud of that episode i'm proud of our conversation about it uh it's obviously we're three years into this and nearly 200 episodes so it's it was a long time ago but i really enjoy uh the conversation that we had out of that Mm. so um so yeah i'm very proud of that listeners should go check it out it's a good one it's a good number seven speaking of material we have covered long ago is (laughs) the film devil directed by john eric dowdle that would be fear of god episode number two number two i can't believe it that's crazy that's it was, wild it was our uh sort we've of we've been doing this a while Jackie. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, three years is a, that's a lot of horror to consume it's true i'm white-headed um but it's it's funny that that film holds a special place in my heart and always will. And, and I uh, championed for it to be our inaugural film to cover. Obviously our pilot episode was just a conversation sort of introducing people to the concept. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I was glad to see devil get some love this time around fear of God episode two. It's hard to believe how far we have come. That is crazy to think about. Um, okay. So number kind of crazy. <laughs> exactly. Number six, Directed by Breck Eisner, uh, remade from a film, a lesser known film by Night of the Living Dead director George Romero. It is The Crazies, starring Timothy Oliphant. This is a film I have for a very, very long time been meaning to get to and, because I hear that it's great. I hear actually uh, that it is better than 
the original by George Romero, uh, that it's stronger, and I've been meaning to make it to it and just never got around to it. Uh, we should do that together. We should, yeah. Maybe we, we just, maybe we just like launch in. You know what? Let's scrap what we did for this week. Let's just let's pause real quick. We'll go watch the crazies, and then we'll we'll. Come I mean, back I just and, and you just got to look at the headlines if you want to watch um, the crazies. That's a sad but fair point. Um, but no, I I'm assuming you haven't seen it. This is true. <laughs> so, but I, but no, I hear it's, I hear it's fantastic. I hear it's really, really strong, and I would love to see it. I would love to but comment should, more about. We what should I do. figure out a way to work it in, Riri. We should. Um, speaking of things I've also not seen is number five. I saw the devil. This is a film. I uh, yeah. Why don't you? Who directed that? <laughs> <laughs> who directed that again? Uh, directed by Ji Woon Kim. That was not too bad. Okay, it's, it's great. I, but but I did intentionally make a note to not say it yeah of course of course you do that's funny um that is a film i have seen and man that is that is one of it's a south korean film and that is one of those that just it's one of those undeniably powerful experiences that you're just not sure you want to go through again because it's Hmm. it's it's oppressive imagine based on that title well and yeah i mean the 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 fundamental premise is like a um a police detective who is hunting a serial killer and instead of what's wild about this story is that he catches him pretty early in the film tortures him and then lets him go only to do it all again like the police chief because this sadistic serial killer tortures and kills his victims in violent oppressive ways the police chief is not satisfied with simply having apprehended him. He then torments the guy and cuts him loose to hunt him again. And that's, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating and undeniably powerful film, but good Lord, it is a difficult viewing experience. Um, It's again, it's very thought provoking, really powerful, but it is, it is challenging uh, to sit through. Um, But it is your number five listeners. Uh, I, understand why it's here even though it's something that i would not be necessarily eager to queue up again i understand why it's this high on the list because once you've seen it like it's 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 really affecting it it sticks with you um number four uh film i don't know if this is the only time he's been on this list or i, I feel like this is the only time he's yeah. he's crossed over in here but directed by the one and only martin scorsese uh it this is one that is soon to be a fear of God episode because uh, spoiler tease, it is featured in phase two of our hashtag in the morning series uh, when we cover season two of the leftovers, but it's shutter Island. Um, Mm. And have you ever seen, will when we cover it on the leftovers, will that be your first time seeing it or have you seen it before? I saw it in the theaters. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I love it. I was delighted to see it this high in the list because I think it's I think it's a really strong film. Um, I had actually read the novel. I believe the novel was by Dennis Lehane. I had read the novel before I saw the adaptation. Was really taken with the novel. Was really taken with the adaptation. And so, yeah, when I saw it land at number four, I was just I was I was so happy. I was delighted. An elated lackey. I was an elated lackey. (laughs) Elated lackey. The listicle in a new location. So, um, (laughs) I. But uh, but yes, so so we'll we'll sort of pause our thoughts on that. Other than my uh, obvious affection, because again, 
in just a few weeks. I'm not sure exactly where it'll fall in the schedule, but it will be part of season two of The Leftovers and, and phase two of Hashtag in the Morning. So, yep, Shutter Island by Martin Scorsese. Uh, number three on the list is uh, Fear of God episode number 90 in the middle of our Blumhouse series, that yes. of Insidious, directed by James Wan. Yes, right? uh, James Wan. You yes. left it off the list. I, I just did that from memory. <laughs> I'm glad you Been did. Been doing this a while. I, I meant to include it, and, and it's all right. I forgot. You're just testing me. I was. I sort I of was, appreciate it. You know, like you get to skip out on the bad names, so I'm, gonna see, I'm just going to see what you do with no yeah, name yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. see if you can just conjure it. Um, speaking of James Wan. The so, conjuring. Um, a different different movie <laughs> that's true um yeah so listen to all of our thoughts on episode 90 of the fear of god to hear how we felt about insidious it is your number three number two is directed by eli craig fear of god episode 137 part of our hashtag funny or die series it is tucker and dale versus evil that's a great episode and great movie it is it's such a fun movie it's it's an episode i'm really proud of and it's a lot of fun to listen to that whole series was a blast because you know before we stepped suddenly lacking (laughs) oh yeah that's right that's right and you know (laughs) remember the days when we could talk about horror material and we could crack jokes and we could laugh and have a really great time remember that i I still do that yeah you're the we, we try to. You're the sad sack around here. <laughs> Whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. Just kidding. Um, Number so one, yeah. Riri. Number one on the Fear of God listener voted best of 2010 and our featured film for today is the Natalie Portman Mila? Mila. I think it's Mila. I think it's Mila. No, I Mila think it's Kunis. Mila. The reason well, I'm so you confident know what? is my tomato, tomato, read. Toma- yeah, but yeah, but the, no, okay. no, 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 wait, Le-key. the, the reason, <laughs> okay. Uh, the reason that I am so confident is Mila is because I know that she, you just have that. no, 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 no. Um, I know that, uh, she is really good friends with, um, oh shoot. And now I am blanking hmm. on his name. Well, uh, the, uh, who's the family guy? guy uh why am i blanking on his name the family guy creator seth mcfarlane seth mcfarlane or seth, seth mcfarlane is seth, that? oh yeah um <laughs> seth mcfarlane featured in his film like a million ways to die in the west i know mm-hmm. they're really good friends and he said mila kunis in that in that film so i'm pretty sure well, it's i mila. regret attempting it now so yeah, you should. after that so black swan is number one <laughs> directed by Darren Aronofsky. So after all that, mm, Black yeah. Swan is the I film. also forgot that Winona Ridere is in this film. So Winona. <laughs> Good old Winona. <laughs> Winona. So that has been the top ten of two thousand ten. Riri, do you want to get, offer some commentary while I yeah, go ahead and pull up the top five grossing box office films of 2010. Um, so I will. Um, so what's interesting is I'm seeing there's there's a lot of films that play with sort of um, mistaken reality or sort of heightened reality. Shutter Island certainly has that. Uh, Insidious sort of bleeds into that idea of the you know into the further uh, the the sort of world beyond the world. Um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil plays around with the ideas of of differing perspectives. <laughs> it's a doozy of a day. It's a doozy of a day. Um, so what's interesting is I'm just I'm seeing uh, there's a lot of films in here that play around with people's perceptions of 
of reality versus what actually is reality. Tucker and Dale versus Evil plays with that. Black Swan plays with that. Insidious plays with that. Shutter Island plays with that. I saw the devil could be argued because of these different, uh, it, it doesn't play around with sort of false realities. Um, devil, you have characters on an elevator. One of them's the devil himself. You don't know who it is. So it's interesting. There seems to be uh, a, a theme in some of these films of what is real and what is not. And there being a reality beyond reality that listen that uh, characters within the stories have to come to terms with and have to come to grips with, um, and I do find that fascinating. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm taking away from this. Well, list. thank you for those observations, Reed. You're welcome. Um, interestingly, Nathan. so as always, I do a little quick scan. I'm sorry. I, I said Nathan. <laughs> uh, number twenty-two, uh, top box office earners worldwide in 2010 is. Shutter Island by Martin Scorsese. Well, really? Oh, and, nice. Mm-hmm. And number 16 is Black Swan. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, but looking Good at the six through 10, because uh, I just like to do that because it's fun. But uh, Tangled is on there, which is a great flick. That's a wonderful um, flick. Iron Man 2, which is an okay flick. And okay. How to Train Your Dragon is number 10. But the. The first How You Train Your Dragon? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's um, a really good movie. One through five, from five to one. Number five is Shrek Forever After. You know? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I like the Shrek movies. They're fine. They're fun. That, that's whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've I've grown to not have much affection for them over the years. Really? That's um, interesting. I mean, one, I've got fun memories around, but that's about it. Um, number four is uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception. That's Mr. Nolan. not surprising. Sure. Um, 2010, 10 years later. Will Tenet release to theaters? Who knows? We shall uh, see. Number three on the list is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Part 1? Oh, uh-huh. nice. At $976.5 million. It's number three? That's where we are? Right. Mm-hmm. Number two. Number two. Making $50 million more than Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, bizarrely, is Alice in Wonderland. The, the Tim Burton one? Yeah. That shocks me. Because, I mean, I don't... I, I never saw it. Never well, saw it. but it also, like... I mean, we're not going to unpack this, obviously, because it, it, it made the numbers it made, but I'm just like, nobody talks about that movie. Like, I mean, people who saw it seem to just, like... I bet Tim Burton does. Maybe. Not as much as he talks <laughs> about Beetlejuice. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't know how much he talks about any of his films. Right. But, so, number um, one. <laughs> yeah, go 2010. Ahead. That actually only... Goodness gracious. Only beat Alice in Wonderland by forty million is Toy Story three. Now that is a worthy top. Yes, it is. Film. But isn't that remarkable? Like number one was one point oh six. Number two was one point oh two. That's crazy. That's just a billion. Alice in Wonderland made a billion dollars. That's, that's a just, lot of money for what feels like a pretty random entry. It's just so. It's just so completely wild to me. I just because because of the film, it is. It's like it didn't even. It wasn't even that revolutionary of a production or anything. Like, there's no special gimmick to it, technologically speaking. Uh, like Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, it's not as if Alice in Wonderland was this revelatory thing for even for Burton in his catalog. It's just, it's just a, a such an odd entry to be at number two. But it it made what it made. Although Fine. you could argue maybe it's the the wave created by pirates because Depp is in Alice in Wonderland. Like, did oh, that okay, kind okay. Of buoy it up maybe buoy. maybe maybe marbury 
Oh, uh, so that but that's has, not what we're here to talk about today. No, no, it's not. That has been yet another installment of hashtag 2020, 2020, your top favorite horror films of 2010. And topping the list for you, which is interesting because as we've seen with a couple of these recent lists, 2010, as votes began to come in from listeners, the number one slot kind of shifted around between Tucker and Dale, Insidious, and Black Swan. And it kind of, uh, just depending on when we checked for how many votes had come in, uh, I think for a while Insidious topped the list, but then Tucker and Dale was up near the top for a while. Um, literally, the day we closed voting, we had just received like two new votes in, uh, like the night before I closed it, and they put Black Swan up to the top, into the number one spot. So this was uh, your favorite horror film of 2010. Aronofsky had mentioned before that he, and this is our this is our second film of his covering on the show. We covered Mother, uh, forget the episode number, but quite some time ago. And um, I, I can remember when I saw this film, uh, my wife and I actually saw it together. I think we went to the theaters to see it. And she was mostly watching it because she's a, a, a very big Natalie Portman fan. Um, and Natalie Portman is, is understandably a very interesting actor. She does a lot of, uh, she's got a wide variety to her catalog. But Aronofsky makes some really heavy and hard to stomach films. Um, and I read in my little trivial bit sort of taking that he, he never marketed it as such, but always considered this to be sort of a psychological horror film. I don't know how you could watch this film and think it was anything other than that. I, I forget the marketing around it. I don't know if they were marketing it as like a a gritty surrealist drama or, or something, but... Um, I, yeah, I referred to it as the psychological body horror ballet film. Ah, okay. And you know, that is not Suspiria. It's a nice little mashup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, correct. Yes. Hey, funny. This isn't a trivial bit. It's just a funny story about Black Swan that I want to tell before yes. I forget it. Yeah, go right ahead. So what you might not recall is this film came out Christmas Day of 2010. Did it? Yeah. Good Lord. And the reason I know that is because for a number of years prior to all the kids, um, just all of them, there's so many. Um, <laughs> all the children. <laughs> I would coerce my wife into going to see, as a kind of tradition, going to the movie theater on Christmas day. Hmm. Um, you know, just have, uh, that as a little tradition we had. Sure. Um, and we were in Georgia visiting her, uh, parents and went to see, just scooted out and went to see black Swan. And, the, and it's like, you know, afternoon Christmas day. And it gets to the end that just <laughs> lands Lord. with a, just, just a, Goodness gracious, the, how this movie sort of ends itself. And I remember just getting up and just going, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because it was just so heavy by the end it's, of it. It's like, all right, oh this is how all of us chose to spend part of our Christmas oh day. God, no kidding. Oh, anyway, man. so on with your bits, Reed. No, it's a, it's quite true. Aronofsky, boy, he, he knows how to bring you down if he, uh, I mean, he just. Now, <clears throat> Would you argue that the fount? It's I've only seen it once, hmm. but I remember having a lot of affection in a positive way for the fountain. Oh, I, yeah, um, I, no, the the fountain. Not a that great my film. affection for Black Swan isn't positive, but you know, like Black Swan, I respect as a film, but it's dour as hell. Uh, the fountain, I feel like I remember having, like, wow, it, being stirred by it. It's got a more optimistic lilt to it, 
um, for a number of reasons. It's brighter than a mm-hmm. lot of his films, just color palette and production wise. Um, but also the the theme of it is definitely more in the spirit of rejuvenation and and, and sort of brightness. Um, my favorite film of his, though, I would make a and I'm about to. I'm. A, I think there's a case to be made. <laughs> Do it. That Black Swan might be his strongest film in terms of craft. But my favorite film of his is actually The Wrestler. Um, I I love. I the did wrestler. not see The Wrestler. Yeah, I love The Wrestler. I haven't seen The Wrestler, and I haven't seen Requiem for a Dream. So Requiem what for a Dream. Uh, he made the film Pie. Uh, I didn't see that. It's. Uh, I like to eat that. Yes. Um, pretty sure he made the film pie. Yes, he made the film that pie. Sounds right. Um, and uh, he, yeah, I think I think that might be it. Pie, Requiem for Dream, The Wrestler, uh, Black Swan, Mother, Noah. He made Noah. Mm, um, yeah. And mm. and Noah was, I mean, Noah was was okay. I don't I don't think Noah deserved the derision it received. But at the same time, I didn't think it was. I didn't find it a worthy enough film for me to like champion the reverse like you know it was i defended it a bit from some of the overwhelming onslaught of like this is blasphemous and evil and wrong yeah like a flood (laughs) of just yes absolutely the deluge of negativity um just got just got saturated (laughs) with just like i mean yeah you just had to ring it out yeah i was drowning in comments and just like (laughs) 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 right Uh, I felt like <sighs> you know. I just felt like he started making a film and it was just leaking everywhere, and so it was yeah, just, it was, yeah, it, was yeah. it was a problem. It's um, like these 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 negative comments were coming two by two. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and I mean, like eventually mm. they just couldn't hold water. I mean, it was just, it was it was just. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. Gracious. Oh, so anyway, okay. So off of the aquatic puns, um, I I find Aronofsky to be a really strong and interesting filmmaker. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, wrestler like so many of his films is is heavy. Um, it's it's a little bit difficult to watch, but um, res- wrestler has an emotionality to it that I find really strong, and it it kind of represented for a lot of people the return of Mickey Rourke because Mickey Rourke back in the eighties was sort of this up and coming. Uh, potentially legendary actor, very famous, um, and had kind of disappeared for a while, had had some personal troubles, uh, had been in some things, but was not really on the scene, and the wrestler championed his return. Aronofsky frequently has performers who deliver, like, award-worthy um, performances. I know Requiem for a Dream had some nominations. I think Ellen Burstyn won, if I'm if I'm not uh, forgetting. Mickey Rourke, I believe, won the Oscar for The Wrestler. Uh, Natalie Portman won for this film. She actually, this is one of my trivial bits. Uh, the film, the film Black Swan, received multiple award nominations, but Natalie Portman herself swept. So, she, oh wow, she won. Every single category for which she was nominated Best Actress that award season, she won Best Actress that award mm-hmm. season. So um, yeah, I mean it. It by the end of this film, it makes perfect sense why she swept. Yeah, like oh yeah. In other words, even at the halfway mark, you're like, okay, this is good. This is good. I'm sure she went through some rigorous physical whatever to do this. But the further it goes, the more she shows, the more wackadoo things get. You're like, okay, yeah, this uh, is a killer performance. And she really, so I don't know why or exactly how it hit her radar beforehand, but so 
she's credited in a lot of ways with helping the project even get off the ground because of her enthusiasm and support for it. So she was attached to it before there was ever a completed script. She even self-funded her own dance instruction. So she took a year of professional dance training before the production ever received funding and she paid for it out of her own pocket. Um, and so she was a fan of mess money, brother. (laughs) That's, that Star Wars money just doesn't stop. So, um, so basically, like she she's credited with letting you know, with kind of helping the film get where it needed to get to the degree that even and I thought this story was fascinating. She really deeply believed in this, put a lot of herself into it because even on set when she sustained a concussion, I, I can't remember if it was because she sustained multiple injuries on this on this production. Uh, I can't remember if this was her concussion or her dislocated rib, but they didn't have an onset medic and they couldn't afford one in the budget. So she commented and she said, take my trailer. I don't need a trailer. Take my trailer and pay for a medic to get somebody here. So the next day when she showed up to set, like trailer was gone, medic was there. That was it. So like she really um, was very invested. It sounds like financially and personally in making sure this film. Well, it paid off, it brother. It, at least in awards, it it sure enough did. Um, so that having been said, um, there was some brief controversy because Natalie Portman obviously had thrown herself into this role so holistically, but her body and dance double claimed after the fact that the producers had asked her not to do any press for the film so that Natalie Portman would get most of the credit. So basically what began to arise, and this was fascinating for me to read, what began to arise was I guess there was someone who was on set to help with the more complicated dance steps, most specifically mm-hmm. close-ups of, of foot points and, and mm-hmm. things that would be a little bit more technically uh, demanding for Natalie Portman to pull off. But... Then that person began to publicize at some point that she really did most of the dancing and that uh, Natalie Portman got all the credit for it. But Aronofsky, Mila Kunis, the choreographer, who it should be noted, uh, Mila, (laughs) Um, the choreographer, who it should be noted later became Natalie Portman's fiance. uh, But multiple people from the production came forward and refuted this, mostly not in defense of the production, but in defense of Portman because they were like look Natalie Portman worked her butt off to get ready for this and they went in so Aronofsky presumably went so far as to count individual shots and he said uh, he reported later he's like there are 139 dance shots in this film and of them 111 of them are unaltered Natalie Portman doing her work so that's 80 percent of the work so it was it was pretty squashed down that anybody who tried to like take credit away from what Portman brings to this film he was like nope this is she really deserves all of the praise that she's receiving for this um I did find this interesting Aronofsky apparently attempted to create a rivalry offset to help heighten the performances between uh Mila Kunis that's Mila like me. We're just going to call her. And then La. And then um, Lily. <laughs> Lily. Um, so between Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman, he tried to create this rivalry. And the way he did it was by trying to like sort of drop little comments about their performances from the day and be like, oh, that, yeah, like Natalie Portman really blew it out of the park. And, and he was trying to make comments to them that would generate this bit of tense rivalry. But because they were friends from before the production, 
all it resulted in them doing is going and say, hey, I heard you killed it today. Like it, they would just champion and cheer each other on That's awesome. uh, and applaud each other, which I, well, I thought was such a great story. Um, this was one of only six horror films in Oscar history to be nominated for Best Picture. The other five were The Exorcist, Jaws, The Silence of the Lambs, The Sixth Sense, and Get Out. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, I did find this last little bit interesting. It's got, obviously, echoes and similarities to other body horror, most specifically The Fly. Um, but it also has some similarities to a Japanese animated film called Perfect Blue, which I had heard about a lot and just saw for the first time last year when it became available through this library service hoopla for me to be able to check out and rent. Um, and it, there's even an overhead shot in the bathroom of Natalie Portman that's almost directly mirrors a shot from Perfect Blue. What's interesting to me about this trivial bit is Aronofsky denied Perfect Blue being an influence on this film, despite the fact that that shot is identical and that he himself purchased the rights to remake Perfect Blue like years ago, before he ever even made Requiem for a Dream. But he insists that it had no influence on this film. Sounds like there's a lot of denials and yeah. suppositions and corrections little and yeah. disinformation going on around the Black Swan production. Because more than that, if you, I don't, I assume you caught this, uh, you are an eagle eyed viewer. I mean, what we also learn is that Black Swan is uh, kind of MCU canon as well. Um, because I did, Sebastian I did. Stan shows up, um, as Andrew, right? <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, if you know anything about anything, you'll know that this is more likely just the Winter Soldier got de-iced for a night and he was doing some recon work for Hydra because Toma had defected, right? So Toma, the dance instructor, dance instructor, uh, previously worked, you know, uh, under, you know, uh, the, the, the heritage of Arnim Zola and the Red Skull. Sure. Yes. Um, and, you know, they needed to rein him in. So the Winter Soldier was doing some recon work, checking out the dancers, trying to get close to the company. Because um, what we don't know is right after this movie, <laughs> he gets yeah when the like, soldier you're like 30 you minutes later right <laughs> 30 minutes later you're still with and then and that's then, when he connected well, back up and after that and then so this yeah. is before the shield hydra connection was revealed you know and it's like you just mm-hmm. don't know you just don't and know. you don't I mean, know what Natalie, you don't know you know like um what's her name what's natalie's character's name it doesn't matter but she <laughs> What the dance company itself was a front for a Hydra cell. Um, you know, that's how they do, man. Just hail Hydra. This is still going, and I'm imp- I'm impressed. Thank you. So, uh, but no, that was fun. That was fun to see him in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is the extent of uh my trivial bits. I want to know, uh, other than you know your experience Christmas Day, and just like <gasps> Merry Christmas, um. What I mean, what do you think about this film? What are your general thoughts, feelings? Like, where does where does this film sit for you when you think about it or watch it? It sits rather painfully. Mm. Uh, no, I, I I like it. Um, I mean, it's not like a you know, it's not like I know. a fun fun hang, <laughs> but it's a great flick and yeah, it's it a really hell of a performance. Strong. Yeah, it's and, a strong film, and I couldn't remember, um. 
you know, jump to the end. I, I, I didn't remember exactly how the finale played out oh, other than okay. that. I, yeah. I mean, I remember her dying, but I didn't remember kind of the, the, you know, the sequence of events that led to that. So, you know, what's, you know, what's interesting about that? There Tell is, me. and I think Natalie Portman herself is of this camp. There's, there's a 80% of the camp at least. Uh, yes. At least there's a train of thought, a theory that what you're witnessing at the end there is actually not her death in the in the real that you're you're witnessing a sort of like rite of passage if you were that what she instead what instead died was actually the thing holding her back from being her full potential that she was actually and and I didn't hear her express this in any sort of explicit way but Natalie Portman apparently went into the production thinking okay my character is going to die at the end but then ultimately at the end viewed it differently viewed it not as if her character physically perishing but as her character sort of moving on from that sort of wayfish inhibitions that she was constantly feeling under the restriction of which i thought was interesting um and i know that it's ambiguous on purpose, Aronofsky has a tendency to do that with his with his endings um, and leave. Them. As in, you think it's ambiguous whether she actually expires or not? I do. I think it's ambiguous whether she dies or not, um, because we do see that she's wounded, and we see everybody around her making a big to do about the fact that she's wounded. But just that sort of fade to white. I, I think that leaves some room to wonder if that's really what happened or not. I think there's room to wonder for me personally, it feels pretty definitive. Uh, if only because, you know, so my wife and I watched the film portrait of a lady on fire recently. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I hear it's great, but I haven't seen it. I'm going to be one of those turds. Who's like, it's a masterful piece of film craft. Okay. It's boring. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And yeah. I had this feeling of like my wife doesn't watch many movies with me and like halfway through I'm like, why did I pick this one? <laughs> like this, this, it's, it's beautiful and it's a great story and sure, you know, sure. it's lovely and I get behind everything that it's about. It's just, it's just kind of boring, but oh, I gotcha in the very smack in the middle of the movie. And this is another reason for it. Uh, so there's the two lead woman characters one of them is talking to a third who's kind of a, a sub character, a secondary character. Okay. And she's telling the mythological story. What is the story where they turn around? The character turns around. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a myth. It's a myth. And, and okay. right now, cause I didn't plan to talk about it. It's eluding me, but in the moment, the events, this character's recounting of this myth. I said, that's the movie. Like that's, that's where we're going. Oh, like this is I what's going to happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. The, the essence of the story she just told this other character is the story that's building here. Okay. And so for black Swan, if you recall, there's a part about midway through it's with, it's with the winter soldier. Yes. She's telling him the story of, um, you know, the, uh, of the snow queen or whatever it's called. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so to me, I think the movie is meant to be metatextual, but that's, mm. That's one reason. Now I'm with you. Like the movie plays very clearly with the psychology of her mm -hmm. and the, the literal nature of what you are or are not seeing. Mm -hmm. But 
it's also that her telling that story and the meta commentary about the the that ballet to me is enough to feel like okay i think they're yeah. kind of resting there so what that reminds me of and i and i'm going to apologize there's no way to to make my comment without spoiling a bit of this wow. um oh i the, thought you were about to like to make this comment without being a jerk or to make fun no, of me no 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 um, okay okay so i know you haven't seen the wrestler i'm not going to spoil specifics uh, I'm going to say fine. this as, as carefully as I can, but ravishing Rick rude wins, right? <laughs> so at the end of the wrestler, there's a, there's a character beat where there is a question mark of, okay, if he does this, he is likely to die. And he makes the decision to press on, but we don't see whether or not he dies. And so sure. it leaves, you know, in the credits roll. And so it leaves this feeling of, okay, well, well, did he make it through it or did he die? And Aronofsky went on record for that film, and I'll loop it back to Black Swan in a second. He went on that film. He said it doesn't matter whether he died or not. He made the decision to go forward, so he was basically deciding to die. So you can decide for yourself whether or not he actually did, but he is his character is deciding to throw life to the wind and, and sort of move forward in the decision that he was about to make, even though we don't get to see what the ultimate outcome of that is. And in that same sense in black Swan, I think I could, I, I don't, I, I don't even know that I'm fully convinced she doesn't die at the end. I just found it interesting that there was a, an alt theory to, to that, to that um, take on it. But I do think whether it is a physical, actual expiration or if it is merely a, a metaphorical sense, I do think her character has reached this place to where she will no longer be the same person. Like there, there is absolutely like a, a, a death of sorts that takes place for her character in that end. Whether that is, you know, means her character will not survive the night or whether that means it is metaphorical for her life beyond this. Maybe it is ultimately not the point, uh, just that she has decided to die or she has made she has given herself over to this. And now she is not she is no longer who she was before. I don't know. Um, we're talking about this movie. So, yes. uh, you know, I'm not trying to get real entrenched here. But as you're talking, I'm also thinking about if the movie at its core is additionally about the toxic nature of obsession. Like yes, the toxic mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. of not just obsession with uh, um, a tangible thing or, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm obsessed with Beanie Babies or whatever, you know, like <laughs> that was a really random one. But um, <laughs> I don't know. We've been cleaning <laughs> out the kids closet while they're, while they're gone. So, you know, obsession and things are on my mind. Sure. Um, so whether it's obsession with a tangible item or like just a pursuit and ambition. And so I, it, I am with you. It's an interesting thought exercise it feels a little counter to what mm. the arc of the narrative is about um to to think that maybe she does kind of physically survive but i i did wonder i thought about trying to um pose a, a version of this question to you but so i'll i'll pose it at least the idea of it and kind of address it myself and then you can decide if you want to kind of jump in on it because you know this this movie invites reflection on obsession and pursuit yeah and the question i kind of want to pose even though it's it's sort of still uh in this amorphous shape in my brain is you know are there areas of your life uh are there things you can point to are there times in your history 
again, I recognize the potential for vulnerability there, but where you're like, okay, I got very obsessed with X or here and here's some fallout. And, and so, so interpret that and, and maybe ultimately follow it however, or if you want, but like by no means am I, where's her name? What is her? Um, Nina is her character's Nina. name. Nina. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, now is it Nina or <laughs> it's Nina Mila. <laughs> um, you know, by new by by new means, <laughs> by new means, am I like a nine? No? <laughs> Goodness gracious, <laughs> it's been a long conversational by night. By near mirror, by near mirror, um, not at all, like like Nina, but I, I mean, it. I am notoriously can be notoriously single minded about mm. things mm. and you know again nowhere near i mean the film is is sort of metaphor and playing with heightened versions of things but you know it's it's ridiculous sometimes i i will lament to my wife sometimes i'm like i as a random innocuous example like if i have a thing going on on a particular day you know and the rest of the and and that thing is later in the day like mm-hmm. an event or a work appointment, uh, right. sometimes even stuff like this. Um, and the rest of the day doesn't have specific structure to it. Mm. It can be very difficult for me to, to, to be productive in almost any other way. Sure. Uh, because sure. my brain is just focused on, okay, this thing is coming. And, and that's, again, it's very innocuous, but that also plays out in broader ways too, where sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to, and will occasionally, again, lament and, or ask for help from my spouse. Like I need you to like redirect me somehow yeah, uh, because, sure. cause I'm so just like, and I wish it were for actually like, Oh, your drivenness led to all this like really lovely, productive, <laughs> right, whatever. Right, right, Usually right. it's just Nathan, <laughs> you need to, you are, you are, you are see, and this movie's all about mirrors, right? So I'm looking yes, in the mirror, sure. you know, okay, yeah. and it's mm-hmm, like, Hey mm-hmm. buddy, <laughs> Hey buddy, come on. Come you on. Stop. You, you gotta stop. You gotta stop. Come on. You gotta, you gotta snap out of it. You need to yeah. pivot to something different. Your kids need to eat. You know, they haven't eaten in five days. I'm just kidding. That's never no. Really <laughs> <laughs> kids haven't eaten in five days. You're gonna stop. They're knocking on the door. Say, please. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> so, when I hear that question, what what comes to mind is the ways in which the the very first thing that comes to mind is the ways in which I can be a bit and and this is a metaphor that I think we've referenced on the show before it's used in a variety of ways of of the difference between being a thermomist uh, a thermometer and a thermostat a thermoma a thermoma <laughs> the difference between a thermostat and a nino nino oh my gosh we're I don't know why we're stumbling so much over our words um the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat in that uh, the thermometer, of course, takes on and displays the temperature of the room around it, whereas the thermostat regulates and controls the temperature of that room. And in the context of people, the analogy comes as that, like, do you take on the tone, flavor, language, attitude of the people in which in the group that you are a part of? Or do you enter that group and change the tone of the room? And I definitely uh, have been more frequently in the camp of someone who will tend to, to a degree, take on the attitude. I don't feel like I'm like this as much now. I feel like in my mid to, to late 30s, I feel like I somehow shifted out of that. But 
unquestionably in my 20s, there was a sort of an influential factor. I don't know that I would call it obsessive, but I do know that I struggled a lot to find out who I was in the midst of it because I, in certain contexts, could only sort of be like the people around me. I was still a version of myself, liking the things I liked, expressing the things I wanted to express. Um, but I think it took me a long time before I could really come into a sense of, well, this is who I am and what I'm about. And, um, you know, there's definitely like a people pleasing sort of fundamental aspect to me. And, and in that sense, and, and, uh, Let's just follow this conversation because I, I, I think this is interesting. Like one of the things that this movie struck in me can maybe raise this up as a kind of a theme. I know we haven't talked a lot about specifics like likes, dislikes and scares and stuff like that, but uh, we can certainly get back to that if we need to. But one of the things that I found so interesting about this is when she's auditioning for the White Swan and he's casting both and he keeps pressing her and so much of the film is kind of about like, hey, if you really want to, if you want to do this, if you want to be this role, then you're going to have to bring out your inner black swan. And where my mind went from that are certain key factors of like ambition or certain key factors of like success. Well, if you want to do this, if you want to accomplish X, then you're going to have to be cutthroat or you're going to have to accept that not everybody's going to make it. or You're going to have to get rid of compassion. And I think about sometimes the way that some people talk about like leadership and, and they can talk about like, yeah, but if you want to be a real leader, then you can't be a friend. And if you want to be, you know, a real leader, then you're going to have to uh, sort of whip your team into shape and, and, put them into place or there there could be certain goals or ambitions that they say well you can't fundamentally operate in this field unless you take on a bit of a darker sheen and i think sure. about the ways in which leadership for many people means a display of power or it means a display of of controlling fear and uh, and that that's that if they want to reach a certain pinnacle or a certain status that they're going to have to in the parlance of the movie, you're going to have to like be the black swan. You're going to have to, uh, to really let that, that darkness sort of emerge and find its way to the surface. Um, and that was, that was part of what I was scratching at in trying to unpack what I felt this movie was, was saying and talking about and thinking about in myself. I find my own personal journey has been very much about trying to recognize I'm, I'm using this language deliberately. It's not meant to be uh, volcanic. Trying to figure out who God made me to be and just do my best at being that. Mm. And and that means so much of, and the reason I said I don't mean that language to be volcanic is that sometimes people say that and they still make it, as we've talked about on the show before, they still make it very transactional. Like, oh, well, God made you to go do this, and God made you to go uh, do this for this person, or, or this is what you need to put your hands to, or whatever. And I'm not really talking about that. I'm really, I'm talking about finding the place where you are uh, so at home in your own skin that you recognize, like, no, this is this is how God fashioned me. And that means recognizing where I'm not good at certain things and recognizing where I have a lot of growth to do and a lot more uh, sort of progress that needs to be made and recognizing also where I might bring some beneficial things to the table and I might contribute in a positive or substantive way 
to things and being able to really getting back to parasite language, like own the place, but own myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think, you know, my, again, your question is, I think, an appropriate one, although it, I'm taking it maybe to a place you didn't necessarily intend. But I really have gone in my 30s uh, in, on a bit of a journey of finding out, like, no, who who am I and, right. and what am I about and what am I not about? And I think the struggle that Nina won struggle, because it's a complex film with a lot of potential applications and interpretations but part of what she's struggling with is that you know in the initial stages she's very childlike and she's very she's got natalie portman has uh, a kind of a cherubic voice as it were like she's got uh it's not just high-pitched because it's actually not even that high-pitched but it's very sort of um diminished as a vocal intonation it's a very infantilized performance ah yes that's that's the word and um and so she is pressed in a lot of ways to, and in the film, it should be noted, if you have not seen this film, this film has some uh, sexually explicit uh, material in it, uh, both in some of the language and in a couple of actual scenes. But uh, w- what's interesting to me is it feels like everything around her is trying to push her out of that shell and break forth but i found it so interesting in in the context of the story and in the context of the performance she's trying to adopt that the director is trying to like pull out essentially pull out uh nastier things from her like like edgier things from her and uh to kind of lose that sense of of uh inhibition and restriction and everything and i think for me and maybe i'll shut up my ramblings i think for me Coming to try to reach a place to where I'm comfortable in my own skin means no longer being pushed by certain people to be something I'm not. Coming more into a place of recognizing this is what I can contribute. So I'm going to try to, rather than strengthen my weaknesses, try to strengthen my strengths and try to just uh, be who I am and who I was made and designed to be and just be the best at doing that, not be the best uh, as in like competition, but some very Thor in game vibes you got going on there. Mm, Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. I do think that there's, there's a thread in the film and I'm, I'm kind of going to explode it out a bit into a more practical, like what you're talking about of, uh, one as an asterisk, the film this time around in ways that I didn't sort of notice the first time has a lot of Carrie white vibes going on. Mm. Um, mm. but you know, you reference this and I wrote down this line, the, he picked me mommy. Oh, that, that, right. Ain't, that ain't right. You know, like, yeah. theoretically yeah. this, this woman is at least, at least late teens, probably, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, right at, right at or around 20, early twenties. Um, but I think it's also an interesting examination of like one arrested development for sure. Mm -hmm. But two, you know, you, so single mindedness, uh, I even think in the thread of this conversation, obsessiveness is maybe the wrong word as much as like single mindedness keeps coming to me and how our, our immature self, 
like I would say for me, what I just articulated about myself in terms of being single-minded and how I can get one track and, and like, that is my, that is not the, um, mature me. Like yeah, that is right, right. some default patterns that kind of come up out of anxiety. Um, not necessarily, but maybe fear, but, but more often just kind of anxiety because either I'm nervous about the thing that's coming or, um, the world around me is causing me anxiety. And so I choose to narrow hone in on this one thing. And so sure, I can right, right. mute all that other stuff. And, you know, for Nina, it's not just, uh, her mom who has foisted upon her, you know, they're living in this tiny apartment. Um, the mom has her own unrealized ambitions that she kind of burdens Nina with. Um, mm-hmm. and so that when someone does try and try to finally push her out of that, it's, it is manipulative and it is yeah. coercive and it is toxic. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's only natural that it ends in expiration, right? Like that, that, you know, and, and, and I don't know how to overlay sort of faith language in here, but what just keeps coming to me is this notion of own the place. And, and as in that you just said of like, what is the most mature version of self? Yes. Right. You know, it, it is capacity to hold all of that stuff in tension. Mm-hmm. It is the capacity to say, I do, I am ambitious about X, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's career, whether that's hobby, whatever. Uh, but I also need and can, and in maturity can grow to recognize that is not, that's a fine thing ultimately, mm-hmm. but not the thing. And certainly not the thing I've sort of push myself and mold my being into. Um, I mean, you know, and I, I reference on the show occasionally, I mean, I'm in a sales role and, and have done that for over half a decade now, which is wild to consider, but you know, I, I have learned, but, but mainly through sort of willful resistance to detach from that a good bit, mm-hmm. but there are still times when you're like, okay, well, there have been moments in life, uh, where I was very, uh, ambitious suggests a lot of energy was put into it, but at least mentally ambitious about things, um, where I'm going with this is simply to say, it's hard to know and maturity means, I think, naming these areas that uh, might be good, might be bad, but are just things mm-hmm. that are external right? and saying, okay, I need, I can hold these things in tension. I can hold them loosely. Um, whether it's, you know, for me at many points in my life, the ambition to, oh, be a great actor and be, you know, kind of in that world and, and, um, you know, however you want to articulate that, um, and wrestling through, okay, what does it look like to just, as you're describing, live in your place Mm -hmm. Mm. to, instead of a fractured mirror looking back at you, it's, I know dead horse here, God disguised as your life. Right. Right. And, and, and recognizing that, and it isn't distorted and it isn't, you know, kind of the skewed perverted vision. It's just clarity. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's a hard place to, to stay in. But, yeah. 
you know, as we see with Nina, which again is heightened and metaphoric, but you know, to, to not attempt to learn how to stay there will Mm -hmm. be ruinous. Well, and I think can be ruinous. Now my brain's, now my brain's starting to go. Um, so I think there's something, I think there's something significant about the, the, what, what's coming to mind as we're talking about this, uh, single-mindedness and sense of self. I, I think about that scene where, you know, Winona <laughs> Ryder, <laughs> um, where Winona Ryder uh, is, who's in this film for like five minutes and, you know, she's, she's barely in it, but some of her scenes are really crucial because she's the former starlet who's now been, uh, you know, replaced and to a degree excised to be replaced by Natalie Portman's character. And so when Natalie Portman visits her in the hospital, after she has presumably stepped in front of a car on purpose uh, to, to, to possibly in an attempt to end her life in total. And in one of the more, because hor- there's the last half hour of this is this rough. Hor- oh, it is horrific. And in one of the most brutally violent scenes, I mean, there's a lot of graphic things that happen, but it's really sort of like body horror. It's people happening. It's things happening to people. There's not a lot of person-on-person violence, but there's one scene in the hospital where Winona Ryder takes that that nail Nail file file, and begins to – this happens in the film. uh, She begins to stab herself in the face. And I forget the exact thing that she's saying while she's doing this, but – She's basically saying, like, I have nothing or I am nothing, you know, like she's she's stabbing herself because she has lost and hear hear my language here. She's Mm -hmm. lost the role. So she's lost the in the and you and I are both, uh, you know, in our day got theater degrees and and are performers and, and we understand to a degree that performer mindset. And so without the role. She has no sense of singular identity without the role that was awarded to her and that she is being pushed to embody perfectly. She has no sense of self. That's the one on a writer character. But Nina's going through a very comparable sort of journey right. is that without that role and it, it should be noted in the film that, you know, I think I read somewhere that Aronofsky feels like the real antagonist of this film is the director is is he's the one uh yes uh leroy is his name is what no No, what's shut up no what's his name what's the director's name i'm blanking on it toma oh yeah toma leroy i'm not insane His last name is Leroy. The reason I the reason I <laughs> well, you just for- gotta listen when I'm like Toma, this French name, and you're like, what about Leroy? I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't think that's right. And the we've re- been playing with names the whole conversation. I'm like, I you know, are pulling my I, leg here. No, I know you are the, stabbing my face with a nail file. The reason that it is, <laughs> it's so painful. Um, the reason that it stood out to me for a second is because when he gives her the flowers, I think the person says they're from Leroy, not Tomas, uh, not Leroy. Um, I'm from the South, okay? We say I mean, this man's not Thomas, Thomas Leroy. See? I'm telling you, that's why Hydra's after him. It's a cover. It's true. It is. It's a, it's a faux identity. But um, Aronofsky, to get back to my point, Aronofsky had said that he views uh, Thomas as the, as the ultimate antagonist of the film. 
because and in the context of the conversation we're having, he is the one who like destines fate for these people. What happens when his little princess, Winona Ryder, is out and she is retiring? Well, then she she loses her sense of grip on reality. She doesn't know who she is anymore. So she sees no further alternative but to step in front of a moving vehicle and, and try to end things for herself. Even still, as Nina embraces this, she becomes desperately jealous that Lily is going to come in and assume her role and that Lily's trying to undermine her success in this performance. And everything that she's pushing herself to is to assume a role. And I think that's, to me, uh, a, a more articulated version of what I'm scratching at is that there are so many voices and so many pressures that try to push you into assuming a role and mm-hmm. in in assuming a role that that demands of you. I'm going to use an example that could be a little politically charged. I'm not fully intending to in this moment, but the conversation around political correctness and the, the that when someone expresses a general sensitivity to certain language or certain um, images or, or or something, and I will admit right out the gate that sometimes their sensitivity to that language could express itself in immature ways, that sometimes they are insensitive themselves in trying to express sensitivity. But what you then get is you get this thing that begins to rise up and say, like, well, I'm I'm not politically correct. I just, you know, I just sort of say it bluntly like it is. And what I've seen that to be in the fight over what is and is not quote unquote politically correct is a steady eroding of polite civility in general, like just a steady eroding of sensitivity in dialogue so that what what happens is you get people who assume something as a matter of pride and say, hey, if you if you want to confront this problem, you're going to have to stop being Mr. Nice Guy. If you want to confront this problem, I just tell it like it is. I'm going to I'm not going to play this game of civility and I'm not going to I don't care if you're offended or not. And they they begin to sort of assume this role that they feel they are somehow destined or or being pushed to play that um that they think is going to well this is who I am and they think this is this is how I'm supposed to be. But that's all it is. It's just it's just a role. It's just a facade to to maybe get a little bit more specific about what I'm talking about. Like I'm I'm seeing friends and family members in different contexts begin to sort of adopt pieces of language that are along certain themes and subjects. And I'm apologize for the vagueness here. I just don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I see them adopt language. And when I hear it. My first thought in reaction to their social media post or in reaction to their comment or in reaction to their text message, my then immediate thought is that's not you like that's not your heart. That's not that's not who you are. That is I mean, that is completely in contrast with who I know you to be and what I know you to fundamentally desire to pursue in your life and to cultivate in your life. So what is, and this is what I want to ask that Black Swan is sort of rising up in me. So what I want to ask of these people who I love and care about is what role are you adopting? What is pushing you into this role, into this persona that makes you feel like you have to, you know, um, 
contribute in this way or that you have to adopt. Like, I feel many times very peculiar in the sense that, and I'm not saying I'm some unique, you know, uh, animal in God's creation or whatever, but I do frequently feel peculiar in that I genuinely cherish challenging conversation that will sometimes include disagreement with me. And I genuinely cherish when somebody can have an honest and human conversation in which they do not necessarily hold my opinions, because I feel this is only to my benefit. Either I will understand better why I hold the positions I do, or those positions will be challenged and I will move into a uh, more substantive one by having gained new information or by having gained new insight. And to me, that looks like me becoming my best self and me becoming who I'm, I'm made to be. Um, and I feel like to simply adopt language or to simply adopt attitudes that other people are pushing you to is merely to assume a role that's not really who you are. And I feel like, obviously, in the context of Black Swan, it's, it's about a performance and it's about a... Um, you know, she's literally in front of an audience and she's literally on opening night. And um, and there's those ambitions and obsessions that could be talked about. But it's pivoting things in me that have deeper and and wider ramifications because I see people adopting a lot of roles and personas that then when you get them. And, and I guess I don't know. And this is a scary, scary statement I'm about to make. I guess I don't know if the role and the persona were the niceties I saw before or if it's this. And that's well, the that's the hard part to stomach. Yeah, I think that's a fair concern. Uh the way you are articulating this reminds me of the Andrew Morant's antisocial quote to change how we talk is to change who we are. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pivot sort of deep here real quick. Uh, and then we can kind of figure out where we want to go next. But like, there's a reason scripture refers to Jesus as a word, the word. And I think part of that is just not just the words we use. I don't mean the vocabulary, but the nature of our speech Hmm the flavor of it, the compassion or empathy of it or not is very indicative of an essence, right? Of Mm. as Rohr talks, a true self or a false self. Now this will come up in in the weird time travel way. We do these podcasts. This gets alluded to on next week's episode. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I began reading just because uh, I guess I'm a bandwagon jumper. I don't know, but I began reading how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. And um, he talks in there and I'm only 30 pages in, um, but he talks in there how we are all participants, right? Like, like the, the, the sort of uh, system Kendi lays out, which I imagine though I'm not far enough in the book that he, he cites people before himself who do this, but, you know, he is specifically writing about the notion of anti-racism. Yeah. Like basically the idea that um, you are either anti-racist 
or you are participating in and propagating and perpetuating okay. racial yeah. structures, mm-hmm. hierarchies, behaviors. And because, you know, to your point, um, you might have real profound versions of that. Yeah. You might have just sort of small, tiny versions of that. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going with this is simply the same idea is true in terms of the shades of racism with our verbals being indicative of our essence, you know, Mm, like, like, mm. is it persona? Is it you? Well, if how we talk, um, you know, uh, changes who we are, then ultimately aren't those things pretty closely tethered to each other. Right. And it's only when, cause here's the sad part is you have to pursue that true self you have to Mm. you have to be anti-racist in that paradigm but Mm -hmm. like you have to you have to go after that or you're just going to be this Mm. and and Mm. by that and this i mean you have to go after the true self Mm. or you're just going to keep being the false in varying ways right and in lesser and greater levels of toxicity but and, and, you know, it, it, all analogies are a little broken, but, you know, are we ever on this side of an eternal version of things going to fully enmesh or I'm sorry, fully embody our truest self? No. I mean, that's kind of right. absurd to think. Right. But, you know, if and I think it is life is meant as a gift to continually uh, uh, infinite knowability, as Rohr puts it, um, you know, the 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 gift of my life and of yours for yourself is the continual churning and tilling and pursuing and uncovering and discovering of the of that true self yeah and yeah. that in and that in that work all of these you know in in the film's language it's mom's expectations it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's the visual uh, manifestations in the pink room, the infantilized sort of uh, manner of, of speaking and of sure. Right. Right. And of movement, like all of these things are foisted upon elsewhere. Like, yes, that is mm. that. Is, and, and for me, at least in this current uh, interpretation for me of the film, I don't think she ever finds her true self. Like I, mm, I, I yes. think, mm. I think she falls off the end into yeah. the most destructive and, and catastrophic version of false self because and she embodies the role perfectly. That's sure. what the final yeah. lines of the film. And, it was perfect. And yes. it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be lost on us that it is a broken mirror that kills her. Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. literally, you know, mm-hmm. kind of takes her life. And, and so I think, you know, um, it's funny at some point people are going to be like, Oh my God, Nathan, get some different mentors. Sure. I hear you. But <laughs> Roar talks about great love or great suffering mm-hmm. are these things that push us further towards that true self. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I don't know. I don't know. I think single mindedness has a place. Sure. Yeah. And, and can be valuable. You know, if you're, if you're stuck in a life or death situation and, 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 and I don't even mean that jokingly, I just mean like literally, like if you're in a 
scenario where harm is going to befall you in a real physical, maybe catastrophic sense. Single mindedness is great. You need yeah, some, right, some right, narrowing right, right. of focus, sure. but yeah. you're never meant to live there. You're never meant to, for that to be the fullest version of you. And, and to get back to what you're describing and to, to reincorporate what I was saying about the notion of the word, I think I'll say this for myself. I'm not declaring this, but I have wondered lately have I begun to settle for a less imaginative lived experience than I think is out there? And that's mm. a really weird way to put that. The germs of that. So, so the bridge is a little clearer than the rickety thing I just laid out there. As I've grown more informed, which I actually do think is a good thing to be informed I think we're over-informed and, and thus we're misinformed and blah, blah, blah. But there are times when I'm like, there's, there's a better, I'm, I'm letting the way other people are talking change who I am. Yes. Yes. And, yes. and those people may be literal headlines that I'm reading Yeah, mm-hmm. day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Those people may be colleagues whom I don't really sync with, you know, mm-hmm. like, like this bombardment that you don't, recognize is happening yeah of course until ultimately you're like wait a minute i actually do think life is a lot more good and beautiful and wondrous than i've started to act like it is yeah mm-hmm. and that my mm-hmm. place in it is to be a an emissary of that good beautiful wonder and not just i do think there's a place for it not just a constant critic right and i think there's something because the the director in this piece Leroy, Le- Leroy, or <laughs> his, his his reaction to Beth is her name. His reaction to Winona Ryder, her character's name is Beth. Uh, to the accident is like sort of a shr- like he takes no culpability. Oh yeah, in in what was clearly at least at least partially, if not majority, uh, majorly uh, driven by his actions to push her to that state. And it also got me thinking about the ways in which, like, you know, they, they absolve genius by like, oh, he's a genius. Well, yeah, but he's also a sadist and he's a jerk right. Right. and he's then he's a sick man. And 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 to your point, we don't know precisely how young Natalie Portman's character is supposed to be, but young and the way he's treating her and the way he's kind of kind of pushing her um, is uh, is. It, it's really very difficult to absolve whatever sort of brilliant genius performance he's trying to extract from people. And to your point about the way certain voices are causing you, to, like, I don't want to reach a point to where I can't recognize myself sitting in in a room full of people or and that room may be scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Like, I don't want to recognize, I don't want to get to a place to where I can't recognize myself and my own reactions to what's going on in the world around me. I want to be, I want to be so aware of the things that I hold dear, the things that I cherish. I was having a conversation earlier this evening with, uh, with my father-in-law about, about, the importance of a thing like, and this is, this film is about like 
bot like not about this but has a lot of body horror to it and like body mm-hmm. transformations and things like that and and i was speaking and and again this is edging up to a political conversation i'll make it very briefly but i was speaking in a very frustrated manner about how i've seen some recent like um mockery being made of like president trump trying to take a drink of water or try to walk down a ramp or 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 something like that and I remember my immediate reaction when I saw that some people were kind of, you know, on the Internet teasing him about this. And I should be really blunt before I make this statement. I am not if you've been listening to our show at all, I am not a fan of our current president and, uh, you know, feel how you want to about me and and my feelings on that there. But I've been uh, very vocal against him since early in his campaign. But when. I see mockery being made of like those physical affectations. What it raises up in me is it raises up in me the notion that I have that bodies and the people that inhabit them are sacred. And so when I see mockery being made of affectations that are purely physical, not what he's saying, not what his ideology is, but something that's purely physical, then something raises up in me of like, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Like we can't be a bully in that sense just because we don't like the man or because we don't like what he represents or what he stands for or whatever. We we can't be a bully in those other ways. And I feel like that's the insidious nature of some of these voices and influences is that they'll get us to lose our sense of self and our sense of, of a consistent ethic where we where we would apply it here or where we would apply it there, then suddenly when it's the group we're opposed to or when it's counterproductive to the role that we're supposed to adopt, then we have to violate our own personal ethics and we have to violate our own personal code of, of the way we conduct ourselves to other people. And and I feel like the real challenge, the real difficulty is to to always resist assuming or adopting a role and everything that that role is supposed to inhabit in all of the different conversations that are being had right now i feel like the way polarization works is you're either with us or you're against us you're either on this side or you're or you're not on our side and i feel like that can be can be okay in certain contexts for like a a deciding portion like you're either helping or you're hurting. But I think that sometimes there's this feeling that like, well, if you're on that side, then you can't challenge certain pieces of it or you can't question certain right, pieces right. of it. And and that's where I think it gets really difficult in the context of Black Swan. He's like, you've got to you've got to get to this place where if you he says, if it's just the white swan, the role would be yours. But I'm casting the black swan, too. And so he he pushes her into a kind of it's not only his fault but a kind of psychotic break where she begins like seeing herself as her own opponents and she begins this real disconnected sense of self to the degree that the film you talked about the broken mirror to the degree that the film leaves it ambiguous uh, maybe not too ambiguous that like essentially she stabbed herself in this struggle against herself that's what we're left with right that like the mirror broke and she essentially like plunged that shard of mirror into herself, supposedly telling herself because in the vision, in the scene in the movie, she's viewing 
Mila Kunis' Lily. character. She's viewing Lily, and she's choking her, and she's saying, it's my turn. It's my right. turn. This is mine. But she, we find out later that she was really having that war with herself. And think about this. This came to me while you were talking a minute ago. Because the sad part, as the movie illustrates, with a, with a tool meant to reflect ourselves, with a tool meant to see ourselves, mm. that more often than not, when we think we are attacking a supposed enemy, we are really only damaging ourselves. Oh, my God. That's great. Yes. Yes. I mean, absolutely. And that sucks. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. I want the in in my worst moments. I you know I want that cathartic, f them all you know kind of mentality, and yet it is that sort of it is indulging that. And mm-hmm. I, I you know we we you and I do a show about horror movies. It is itself a catharsis, and so that's a positive. But like indulging those sort of fantasies indulging those sorts of mental trains of thought too deeply and too far in a in a natural way is the quickest it it is the it is the definition of how we speak changes who we are it is it is you altering the true self that is the gift of your own life yeah oh my god nathan like i just i i and floored by the the observation of that, like like um, a a tool meant to show us ourselves, mm-hmm. and then we, in the delusion, feeling like we are attacking the opposition, are really only hurting ourselves. I mean, I'm bowled over by that. Like that's, I feel like that's something that is a diagnosis of our current state of of conversation. Like. Yeah. This is meant. This is an, a, a a prime opportunity to see ourselves, to really see ourselves, and to therefore take stock of of what we look like and what we are and how mm-hmm. we may want that to change. But instead, we shatter the damn thing and stab it into what we view as the other side, right? And only realize too late we've plunged it into our own middle i mean like that i recognize that that may not have been on aronofsky's mind when he when he crafted black it's pretty strong symbolism it's it's there it's absolutely there and and i feel like that is so if we are not careful and if we are not conscious then that is where we will find ourselves in the effort to adopt the role we believe is our destiny in an effort to adopt the persona we believe is ultimately what we're supposed to f- pursue, we will shatter the opportunities to really see ourselves and mm-hmm. ultimately end our own lives in the effort to end the lives of our opposition. I mean, it's, it's I, funny. I think it's I, staggering. I, I was talking to my wife recently about our kids and how to, they've, they've, it causes me mild anxiety, but they've, but it's pretty tame. They've started using Facebook Messenger, like just the messenger. Yeah, messenger you know? kids. Yeah, yeah my yeah, son yeah. too. Right, right. And it's, you know, I have to think back, okay, when I was in, you know, middle school-ish. And the and I mean, we called our friends. So like, that's not that weird a thing. But yeah. no, if the problem is 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 those steps past this. But I'm, I'm coming to um, 
uh, Toma and the mom, like, uh, mm. of the film and, and looking at this thing in the real world. Cause I was talking to my wife. I was like, I'm trying to find the words to, to, if I'm talking to my children about why this stuff can be so hazardous. And it's about naming influences. Yeah. Right. In other, in other words, let's take just social media, ignore, you know, just the messenger thing, but social media period. It's like, you're not just under an influence of the psychology inherent to what a newsfeed does to you, which is documented and vastly. So you're not just under the influence of, uh, your peers or nots thoughts, delude, uh, bombarding you. Uh, you're also under the influence of, um, behind the scenes actors who are participating, who are executing things. You're also under the influence of the attention economy, which is a real pernicious thing. So, and all I'm trying to say is that's just one cultural item. Yeah. Social media. These are all the influences you are at the mercy of. Right. And don't. And as someone who still tries to understand it all, like mm-hmm. much less mm-hmm. a 10 year old an eight year old, whatever. Mm. So there's that, um, you know, at your friend's house, the, there are influences that are acting upon you. That yeah, might be, right, of course. um, you know, let's say your friend's parents are think differently than mom and daddy. Like, well, those influences will start to, to kind of hem in and, and sort of create thought patterns and whatnot or whatever. So just naming these influences and, and how when you ultimately strip that all away and and in that conversation with my wife, it was like things like nature, like this is why getting into nature or getting alone in, in a whether it's meditation or, or if you do right. yoga, that's your thing. And in a different lifetime, like your quiet time, that sort of idea is the intention is yeah. dulling and 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 exterminating and and evacuating all these influences from your brain and heart and spirit right. to be able to have the benevolent influencer mm-hmm. act upon you mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. nature. So where I'm going with this is in the, in your sort of thread of the role, it's, it's also just these forces that are pushing you, you know, like, yeah, like I, you, uh, I'm not saying um, you should, but like you haven't said much about the mom, but I think she's a key role, a key influencer mm. in how Nina sees herself. Yeah. Then I, you've I got, agree. then you've got the, um, uh, Toma acting upon her too. And like, she, she doesn't know what she looks like. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happens when you're under the spell of so many definitely destructive, but even just so many influences, period. We don't know what we look like. We don't yeah. know the sound of our voice. Right. 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 I mean, this is Absolutely. sort of what you were talking about a minute ago of, of learning yourself and recognizing that at least catching glimpses of that true self. Yeah. Exercising that voice. Yeah. Recognizing that, you know, if, if it's, you know, I was going to say something poetic. Like if it's, if it's the voice of love, it's the voice of God. Like that's, yeah. that is what echoes well, forth because- from you. Because if we don't know our own voice, how can we hope to recognize right. that still small voice of his? But how, see, how it's so we? funny because I feel like what you're saying there, and and this isn't me saying, oh, I'll pat myself on the back, but like I keep coming back to a ghost story. Like 
we, I speak for me and I think you would probably yeah. echo this, but so much of the Christian input, culturally speaking for, you know, I, I you, you were weaned on it. I plugged into it in my middle school years and, but dove hard. Mm -hmm. So much of it was external and exterior. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and God in his great goodness extended to you, the wretch. Mm. There's songs about it, but yeah, of course, but, but I'm, I'm not there anymore. I'm in mm -hmm. the, no, God gifted me with me. Mm -hmm. And, and to know that. Yeah. And to know myself as myself to, mm -hmm. to that, 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 you know, to, to look at that unbroken mirror. Right. Right. And find in it capital G good mm. is itself God disguised as me. I yeah. know that's super metaphysical and no, a little no, no. weird. And, and uh, yeah, and we're, we're not in completely dissimilar places, although I do still operate from a paradigm of a very, an internal reality and an external reality that are of the same cloth that, um, that in, in the same way that there is, you know, likeness and begottenness, that there is an external and that there is an internal and that they are of the same, uh, uh, nature, but that, there is a a fracture that has to be sort of um, reconciled in order to really uh, move forward in wholeness with that external and internal uh, situation. So that's yes, that you know, <laughs> to to, to uh, see your metaphor and uh, or see your metaphysical and raise you metaphysical. Uh, right. But but I think rather than because as we're as we're getting to the the you know a potential sort of winding down place for this conversation, I do think. There's there's crucial, crucial consideration to be made of you've said multiple times, I agree with it, I know it's Richard Rohr first, God comes disguised as your life. And I think a lot of the hard work is about in recognizing what is the influence that's not who who God has has right. fashioned and formed you to be and and to lose that that sense of shade that distracts and distorts from who you were designed and, and, and meant to be. And I do think, uh, yes, I mean, I still operate very much under the sense of, you know, that, that God is speaking and that in the, in the ways he is speaking, there are no boundaries through which he might communicate my own heart and mind. Uh, the, the, the scriptures, the um, nature of experience, and 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 I know that that's some people would hear that and you'd be like, and they'll have a conniption fit. That's know, our but, show. <laughs> but but what that makes, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this feels important and and adding to a layer to it. I always think um, of in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and uh, the father says of the child, um, effectively. If his is not the voice of God, then God never spoke. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think of that in just loving human relationship, right? right? It's like, yeah, right. If the truest read, if the if the true self of read isn't issuing forth the voice of God, then God does not speak. Mm, like, like mm, mm. I know that's a little wonky and weird, 
but that's what's coming to me in this moment, this notion of, of, of trueness of self and articulating from that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't cut you off. No, 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 that's no. And, and I do think I would adopt that and I would say, abandon the role, abandon the, the artifice, the artifice, the, the Swan Lake casting decision and, and pursue, pursue the true self and, and follow after that. And, um, yeah, I would, I would wholeheartedly agree. That's a, wow. I never, I didn't quite expect, I knew it would be either. an interesting conversation, but I didn't quite expect this one. Um, listen, I know we don't have to do a, 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 a litany of scares, but one <laughs> that feels like it is summary for all the rest. Riri, that girl got webbed toes. That ain't right. That, that ain't right. That, that is that ain't not right. right. Well, every bit, I mean, like, Good Lord, all of the like skin picking and uh, uh, no, nail clipping uh, and everything uh, and skin picking uh, 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 and, and all this stuff like and the skin off the written the, in, uh, no, in the no, no, no. Like they got me like squirming uh, when they're just tying their hair up in a bun. Like I just I couldn't <laughs> like that ain't right. Like you got me squirming just because you you're gonna put your hair Go up. Go wash your hands. With that sound, I just I couldn't. I couldn't with the whole thing. The whole thing ain't right. Um so you you wanna pivot sure. into the fog meter? So I mean, the fog meters are exhausted. very <laughs> is our very specific metric of fear and God where we rate these films uh, on their scares and their substance. I'll go first on fear. I think particularly in the last half hour, it has some really uh, sort of volcanic frights to it, um, both visual and sense of like uh, uh, thematically and just metaphorically. So I think I'm going to lean high here. I'm going I'm to give this uh, fear factor like a nine. I mean, like it's it's pretty harrowing towards the end, pretty chilling. It is, and I think uh, I think I'm going to join you at that nine. I was gonna him towards an eight, but you know, <laughs> friendship. But I but um, I influenced you. You did, you did. <laughs> but you're a good influencer, um, a good influence. Um, who <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, I think part of what ratchets everything up a notch is just her performance by the end it's not just the stuff that's happening it is how in it yeah portman is in that fully committed fully committed um yeah uh, deserving of the many awards uh what would you say for the god meter um i'm gonna give it a seven because i think that it's riddled with thoughts and Mm. uh allegory not allegory but you know metaphor and and these things these symbolism is is sort of what i'm looking for there um but aronofsky's hard i mean i I worry about the guy um and so i don't know exactly it would be interesting i didn't go i didn't do the work to go listen to interviews or, or read interviews for interpretation but just knowing his typical kind of output um yeah i'm just gonna stop talking and give it a seven sure yeah 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 uh i'm gonna you join me with my nine on on fear i'm gonna join you with your seven on god um i feel like aronofsky asks powerful and important questions i don't often know if even he knows how he feels about them or what he thinks about them um and i may be incorrect about that but i feel like in a lot of his films they are evocative in powerful ways but um not 
always very conclusive to the degree where you have much to to hold on to after the fact but they are about very interesting things and and uh, black swan is is no different i didn't really try to make the case but were we to still have the conversation into the technical mechanics of it i think there's a case to be made that craft wise black swan is his strongest film and and perhaps his greatest achievement yeah it's it's really tight as a film uh paced to perfection uh heavy as can be but uh but there's there's a lot to it um and so yeah so seven and that means that we give uh black swan directed by darren aronofsky and starring the multi-award winning natalie portman an eight out of ten on the fog meter um but the more prescient question would you recommend black swan um uh yeah i think i think um you know it's mature uh, but not, I don't think, in a in an off-putting way. Uh, if it's not, whatever. Yes, I recommend it. Um, I love the word you used. It's a mature film. So yeah. I think for mature mindsets, it's an easy recommendation. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that it is not oppressive to the degree that I would overly caution people, unless you're no. particularly sensitive to, uh, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> well, in certain... Uh, <laughs> sexually explicit uh, moments which are not pervasive through the film but do exist unless you're particularly sensitive to that that mama fell asleep in that room that ain't right (laughs) that (laughs) That ain't right right. that ain't right Um, (laughs) oh my god (laughs) covers over the head Um, so no so I would join you in your recommendation it it is a film I recommend Um, it's it's a mature viewing experience maybe not Merry Christmas um But I do think that that your your statement there is is uh, most appropriate. It is a mature viewing experience, and in that sense, I would recommend it. So, uh, cool. so yeah, yeah. Read. That was that was another edition of yeah. That was another edition of twenty 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 twenty. Putting two thousand ten in the books. It'll be a little bit of time before we get back to two thousand eleven and beyond. Because next week we are officially inaugurating book club. <laughs> So uh, we will be having a lengthy and very fun conversation with author Matt Ruff about his novel, Lovecraft Country. Really nice guy. We have a really fun conversation that we think you're going to enjoy a lot. Tread into um, some deeper waters here and there, but a lot of great insight and information into his book and what it's about and how he crafted it. Um, It's it's just a really fun conversation, uh, and we think you're really going to enjoy it. So that is taking place next week. And then the week following that, we will be diving back into Leftovers Season 2 for that next phase. So this has been a fun, abbreviated intermission of 2020-2020. Thank you, as always, Nathan, for having these conversations with me. I really appreciate it. That was was a fun one. I liked how that went. Yeah, me too. I didn't do any of my notes except the web toes. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Um, So, listeners, uh, as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. We will see you next week, everybody. See you next week, guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. 
Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.